February 2, 2023. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Great to see you here in February. You made it safe. We're going to move forward and get through this, are we not? Let's begin. This report actually today is going to have a, a number of basic science advances that have potential for the future, and they're sort of scattered throughout the blog. So let's begin with something clinical. Um, and uh, there's a Swiss, reg- a Swiss registry who recently looked at uh, patients who started on their first JAK inhibitor. Some of these patients had received prior biologics and obviously a bunch of DMARDs prior, but it was their first JAK inhibitor. So about 400 patients. And, and after not responding, failing, whatever, and needing a change, the question was, should they go to a second JAK inhibitor or a TNF inhibitor or another MOA biologic? So overall, 40% had previously been treated with uh, a biologic DMARD. And in the end, it didn't seem to matter what your next choice was. Although there was a trend towards better retention on the JAK inhibitor. Again, this is sort of uh, picking up on practices rather than a clinical trial. So there might be biases in here as to why someone would have chose a second JAK inhibitor and why they chose to stay on it. So therefore, it's not surprising that there was higher retention 918 days with the JAK versus the other options, the, um, which were lesser, which was the other uh, biologics or the other, uh, another TNF inhibitor. Um, while those numbers were much lower, it, they were not statistically significant. So um, the point is that you can switch from jack to jack. And again, I think the rules are the same as with TNF inhibitors. If you're a primary non-responder, it's probably senseless to go on to the second drug in that class. And I would apply that to jacks just as I do with TNF inhibitors. Speaking of jacks, the question is, um, can, can you use them safely in patients who have interstitial lung disease with RA? Well, there's nothing in the JAK inhibitor profile that would make you worry about interstitial lung disease per se. But the question is, what will they do? How do we know? You know, and really, what are your options with RAILD? In fact, there really are no effective options as far as treating the ILD part of that. There's a lot of anecdotes and beliefs that are not not proven, including rituximab and whatnot. But certainly you can use a lot of therapies, and maybe you would avoid using methotrexate, not because methotrexate causes ILD, it does not, um, but because you wouldn't want um, a person who already has significant lung disease and limited pulmonary reserve to suffer any kind of a further uh, drug-related lung effects like uh, allergic pneumonitis that you can get with methotrexate. So the question is, can you use a JAK inhibitor? An Italian retrospective study over a four-year period uh, only looked at 43 patients, but they did have high-res CT uh, proven ILD. Um, they were older, much older, 69 years of age, and they were followed on an average of about 19 months the good news is that um, the FEC was stable at about 80%, improved at about 10%, and worse at about 10%. You can say the same thing for the DLCO and um, what happened on their um, high-res CT scans. So uh, somewhat comforting data that maybe jacks are okay in this situation, but this is observational data. We really need to see more reports on this. 
Um, a journal um, all of us bench scientists read on a regular basis, PNAS, um, has an interesting uh, novel approach to the potential future treatment of RA. Uh, and it's sort of uh, couched in the idea that, you know, all of our best new therapies are biologics that are parenterally administered. This is saying here's an oral approach to that. And what they did was they actually bioengineered um, lactobacillus species, you know, part of the microbiome, to orally deliver a, a peptide that would be useful in affecting memory T cell function. So the peptide that they bioengineered into lactobacillus is called KV1.3. Uh, it, and it turns out that um, blocking KV1.3 improves uh, animal models, rat models of RA and psoriasis. KV1.3 is expressed on effector memory T cells, and that is theoretically the mechanism by which it works. So it's a novel approach. Um, this is a very early start. Um, congratulations to those investigators in PNAS. Um, this past week, the EMA, um, its division CHMP, has recommended the authorization of Ducravacitinib for um, uh, future treatment of moderate to severe plaque psoriasis in the um, uh, in Europe and those who use EME, EMA certification. Now it's been recommended for approval. Its final approval is the next step. That's a good step forward for Ducravacitinib in the EU. Uh, I don't know if you've ever managed retroperitoneal fibrosis. It can be a, a, a difficult condition. It can di difficult to diagnose, maybe more difficult to manage. If you look at the literature on, you know, what is the best treatment, it seems like it's all over the place with, you know, my, my feeling at this point is that it starts out with steroids and then after that you try to avoid steroid toxicity with something else and cytotoxics have been used, um, mycophenolate, tamoxifen, um, rituximab. Um, I'm reporting on a small open label trial of eight patients who were on um, steroids in high doses, and they were treated with uh, sirolimus, an mTOR inhibitor, um, given two milligrams a day for three days, and then they sort of tailored therapy with one milligram a day according to uh, blood levels. They followed them out to 48 weeks, and they showed um, a significant decrease in fibrous tissue by imaging by 50%. Set rates went down 70%. Uh, IgG4 levels went down 50%, and, and those who had uh, elevated creatinines or abnormal renal function had normalization. So this is encouraging, but again, this is an area that really needs uh, a larger population study um, or a control trial, but I don't know who's going to do a control trial in a rare disease like that. Um, there's a, a study of scleroderma patients and another um, target for scleroderma, and uh, this particular target is A20. It's a uh, fibroblast enzyme that is um, down-regulated. When it's down-regulated, it promotes fibrosis in systemic sclerosis, both in patients and also in animal models. But it's counterbalanced by uh, another enzyme called DREAM. So DREAM is a negative uh, transcriptional regulator of A20. This balance between A20 and DREAM, uh, as speculated in this article, suggests a new way of maybe trying to limit the fibrosis that's seen. Uh, and they'll probably work this out uh, in therapeutically in animal models before it's ever taken uh, into patients. Uh, 
I know you know you know that this uh, conditions like dermatomyositis, polymyositis are serious. That they do carry a significant risk of mortality, um, and I, and those are very memorable cases for me when I've seen my patients go downhill so rapidly. Um, this is a, a study that looked at um, U.S. mortality statistics um, between 1981 and uh, 2020 for both PM and DM. Um, the actual mortality numbers were uh, over 12,081 and 23,600 in 2020. Overall, even though the numbers are higher, um, they showed a downward trend in overall mortality over time, ranging, and there's different ways of calculating this in um, both data sets, both cohorts, ranging from about 2 to 7%. Um, but overall, they showed that, um, that the patients with polymyositis or dermatomyositis if they did die, it was less likely to be the sole cause of death and more likely to be one of multiple causes of death, suggesting that there's significant comorbidity that surrounds um, the, the, these patients and, and leads to their death. Uh, and it may be the comorbidity that they're going to die from, like cardiovascular disease and lung disease, et cetera. So these are somewhat sobering. I mean, it's encouraging the numbers are going down. Um, but again, these patients are at risk and it's something we need to need to worry about. Uh, there's a study that looked at, I think this was JAMA, that looked at whether or not arthroscopic menisectomy or partial menisectomy was a... Um, a useful procedure in patients who had degenerative meniscal tears. So in this study, they, these are patients who had MRI-proven degenerative meniscal tears, and they looked at what happened if they, uh, this is a meta-analysis of 10 trials, 600 patients, um, two-year outcomes, and they really showed no, no benefit to uh, arthroscopic partial meniscectomy compared to non-surgical management or sham. They had some sham um, uh, procedures that were also involved. Uh, the data uh, suggests that, again, there's probably not a good use for or reflex uh, need for arthroscopic surgery in patients with meniscal tears. Uh, I had a meniscal tear when I played football in high school, and they, they went in and, and removed it surgically, and that left me with horrible <laughs> degenerative arthritis uh, for many years. And so, obviously, the idea was we're not going to remove the whole meniscus. You need that. Uh, maybe we'll just do partial meniscectomies. It turns out that a lot of those don't really need it. So there are criteria being developed for ideal candidates for um, meniscectomies in the future. I don't know if you've seen all the news this week, but what the big news on the drug front is that Humira went off patent, and we now have the introduction of adalimumab biosimilars. There's only one being introduced in January. We have seven more coming uh, on the market in July of this year. The first one is Amgen's Amgevita. Uh, the drug was approved in 2016. Its marketing was held off. Um, by arrangement with Avvi until January 2023. Uh, the, co the drug comes on the market at two different prices. I find this um, really confusing. So it's first off, it's estimated that the cost of this drug would be either forty thousand um, to eighty-five thousand a year. I assume that means whether it's an usual dose, uh, forty every other week, or double dose. Um, but it also comes with two discounts, a 5% uh, discount, which is going to be the regular discount, 
or 55% discount, which Reuters has um, claimed that it's unlikely the 55% discount will be in place because the pharmacy benefit managers are going to go for the 5% discount because there'll be better rebates, uh, and that's the one they're going to choose. So again, money drives this equation. Yeah, money for not the patient. Um, there was an interesting article this week in Medscape about a combined um, rheumatology cardiology clinic, and it seems that this has sprouted up in Toronto, Cleveland, New York, Boston, uh, Stanford. Um, it seems like a really, really good idea, but it's not widespread. I don't. We've, we've written about, talked about room derm clinics. I've seen room pulmonary clinics in the past, and I think these are great advances, especially the room derms. I think that's a great idea, but. I don't have a room derm clinic uh, wherever I've worked. Uh, what I've had is a cell phone and a good relationship with three or four really strong medical dermatologists. And I have a cell phone relationship with them. And they, they call me about patients on the spot. I call them. And that leads to, as best you can do, combined clinics when you don't have a combined clinic. Uh, the benefits of a combined clinic, like this cardiology rheumatology clinic, we talked about in multiple places, Cleveland Clinic and, and the Brigham and whatnot, is that it clearly has a utility in doing research. It has another benefit in managing patients who are either at high risk or whom, in whom you want to lower their high risk, for instance, for cardiovascular disease, and, and also for expert advice on how to um, uh, manage these patients medically when they're undergoing surgery or other, med other significant procedures. So again, that is going to be a niche uh, opportunity for some of you, and I, I hope it grows so that we can learn from that. The FDA this week approved a first BTK inhibitor, that's Bruton's tyrosine kinase, um, and it's being approved for adults with refractory mantle lymphoma. Uh, the important thing here is that this BTK inhibitor called uh, Jpirka or uh, pertobrutinib uh, is um, going to be active in the hematology oncology world, not in our world. But there are BTK inhibitors being developed for a lot of our conditions, including RA and lupus. There are also trials going on in pemphigus and multiple sclerosis. But you'll be seeing um, BTK inhibitors um, in the future, and there's uh, some promise there. So let's, uh, let's look for that. Uh, I uh, read an article about uh, Kikuchi Fujimoto disease. I just like saying Kikuchi disease, Kikuchi syndrome, Kikuchi Fujimoto, if I really want to get into the uh, alliteration of it all. Um, this particular report on 56 pediatric patients with Kikuchi Fujimoto disease um, showed that 26% of them develop macrophage activation syndrome. What's interesting there is that you know that uh, systemic JIA, Stills disease, gets a lot of MAS. Uh, they're at higher risk. Kikuchi uh, syndrome looks a lot like um, um, Stills disease in some cases. It, uh, again, it, it is, its hallmark feature being necrotizing lymphadenitis is not a feature of Stills disease, but the lymphadenopathy is, along with the fevers and rashes, there can be some confusion here. I don't believe there's any confusion here, but it was important to note that this association exists for those patients. Um, patients who were likely to get MAS were more likely to have uh, skin rash, um, steroid treatment, recurrence of disease, lower cell counts, and higher LDH. Well, those latter things are actually hallmark features of MAS, not necessarily of Kikuchi's. But you should know about the association. 
Another study looked at a sub-analysis of the vasculitis rave study where the patients were treated first with either rituximab or cytoxin and then later uh, azathioprine. Uh, and what they showed was of the patients who had severe infections, um, uh, 18 of the 22 of those patients uh, occurred within the first six months. The takeaway on the sub-analysis that the predictors of severe infections and by the way this applies to whether you were treated with rituximab or cytoxan initially right predictors um, of severe infection would be higher baseline cd19 positive b cell numbers patients who are on pjp prophylaxis making you wonder whether it was pjp that was a severe infection they got um, and that's prophylaxis with Bactrim, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxol. Um, and, and those two factors might make uh, that population at higher risk. Keep your eyes open. Uh, a report this week on something we all know. Jack inhibitors raise the risk of herpes zoster. The population risk of, of zoster is, um, here it is, it's 0.3 to 0.5 for 100 patient years in this large cohort of RA, PSA, AS, and ulcerative colitis patients going on JAK inhibitors, they showed basically a two to seven fold increased risk of, uh, actually, I'm going to take that back, a four to, to tenfold increased risk of zoster when using a JAK, right? So um, turns out that the risk of zoster was actually the least in psoriatic arthritis and sort of equal between um, RA and ulcerative colitis, ulcerative colitis patients that went on a JAK inhibitor. There was limited data about, the, about spondylitis patients or about UPA patients to make any firm number recommendations in this analysis. And lastly, rheumatologists are getting happier all the time. Um, two years ago, the Medscape uh, review of burnout had a rheumatologist being um, a number two on the list of burnout. Really? Um, the good news is that we're no longer number two. We're now number 10, which, you know, I'd rather be number 45, but it's still a positive thing. Uh, in this analysis that appeared in January on Medscape, overall 53% of, room, uh, of doctors claim to be burnt out or suffering from burnout. That's up um, uh, 11% since 2018. It turns out that burnout is more common, like almost 20 points more common in women, 63%, than men, 46%. Um, and that number also has gone up. Reasons for burnout um, tend to be what they were in the past, um, but often it is um, uh, too many work hours, lack of respect, um, insufficient compensation, lack of autonomy and control, and the ever-present electronic health record. Uh, so again, uh, it's also driven to some extent by depression, maybe claimed by uh, an actual me medical depression, clinical depression by 34%. However, only 13% had sought uh, professional help. So again, burnout is a, a big issue in basically all age groups of rheumatologists. It's not just the old, old white guys who are retiring. So uh, I think it need, we need a more strategic plan on dealing with burnout in medicine overall. Anyway, that's it for this week on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Tune in next week. We'll have some cases from Ask Kush Anything. Oh, by the way, Room Now Live 2023. Be there March 18, 19. Check out the agenda. It's a killer set of speakers and, and, and topics. Uh, it's going to be the best ever. Bye-bye.